Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're sharing insightful presentations from a few of our Innovative Executive League Summit speakers. In early November, we held our second in-person summit, We had an amazing slate of thought leaders sharing their experiences and perspectives on innovation and leadership. And we want to be able to share some of that with our podcast audience as well. So we've pulled together highlights from a few of our presenters. If you're unfamiliar with the Innovative Executives League, it's an invite-only community of innovators, entrepreneurs, and intrapreneurs with a growth mindset and a passion for innovation. I founded the organization about five years ago to increase the network of innovation in the Chicagoland area and also on a national scale. Thank you, Patrick. Let's dive into our speaker lineup for today's episode. First up, we have Deepika Dugarala, SVP of Global Technology Platforms at TransUnion, with an overview of the developer experience and how to improve business performance by focusing on your people. When you think about what brings people to software development in general, right? These are creative people. They want to write great code. They don't want to have tech debt either. They want to innovate. They want to know that their customers love the products that they build. And in my mind, they're no different than an artist or a sculptor or whoever that's kind of starts with a vision and a concept and then finds a way to turn their raw material into that. For developers, they start with a problem. And what they're looking for is to find a great way to build that solution. And yet, in their day-to-day work, we tell them exactly which tools to use. I would not try to tell an artist which colors or which tools to use. I really need them to do their thing. And I feel like our developers need to just be able to do their thing too. So when we start to treat it like a factory and say, okay, how many features are you going to put out? How many points is that? And how long is it going to take? And tell me exactly what you're going to do before I've even presented the problem to them. I think we're locking them into, um, okay, fine. I'm just a cog in this machine. Tell me what I need to do. And it drives um, the wrong kind of engagement and, you know, and leads to problems. Um, and This study that I'm referring to is um, by McKinsey. And what what they found is that when you think about uh, and focus on the experience for developers and give them um, the, the, the right tools that they need and the space that they need, there is a staggering improvement in retention, in innovation, in productivity across uh, the teams. We weren't getting any of this at TransUnion. You know, we were we were trying to figure out how to get our teams excited and engaged about just being part of a transformation. And and frankly, within the same study, it says that one of the top um, indicators of you know or drivers of developer velocity is the opportunity to work in cloud technologies and 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 really. Uh, be part of transformations, we weren't seeing that excitement translate either. Um, So we ended up taking a bit of a step back and saying, okay, 
let's actually listen to our engineers. What are they telling us? You know, what what is their experience on a day-to-day basis? What are the things that we need to be tackling for them uh, in order to actually make it a fun place to work, right? It was the most humbling gift we could have gotten. Um, nothing, nothing was right. I mean, and, and you know, it's uh, you kind of have to be prepared for that when you ask developers to tell you exactly what they're thinking because they're going to tell you exactly what they're thinking. We're a regulated company. We have things we need to do a certain way, processes we need to follow. But the feedback was that our processes were curtailing their ability to just do their work. It was too complicated. Um, We were still um, forcing everybody to use Windows machines, while a lot of the developers that were coming into the organizations were accustomed to using Macs. You know, we would put a whole bunch of monitoring and other software on those devices because we needed to make sure that it's safe and secure and encrypted and um, you know, data protection, it, they couldn't get to the sites they needed to get to just to do the research they needed to do to do their work. So everything took way longer for them to do. Information was harder to get to. Um, while we were pushing them through this factory of what are you going to do? When are you going to do it? When are you going to get done? Right. Um, so we created the developer experience program at TransUnion. And it is based on a few uh, tenants. It starts with onboarding. So let's make sure from the time they interview, accept the job and onboard, they have um, a good experience with us. It starts with um, learning and training. So, you know, providing, uh, we, we actually had a ton of opportunities for upskilling and training because we were looking to get everybody ready to move to the cloud. And we were one of the companies that was very particular about not hiring a bunch of third-party cloud experts to come run our transformation. We really wanted to bring our developers along that were at the company already. Um, But it was about making sure that they actually had time to do it. You know, it's one thing to provide training opportunities. It's a whole other thing to make sure that they have the time to do it. It was about continually talking, understanding the pain points and thinking through what could we be doing to address the pain points. The psychological safety that's required for uh, developers to actually share, you know, the, the pain points and what we could be doing. It was about tooling, you know, do we have the right tools? Do we have the right automation? You know, is, is everything that could be automated automated? Should we be thinking about things differently? And then just thinking through all the different steps and processes and making sure that our digital talent and and the talent engine that we had was really being managed in in a way that from the time we hire to ideally the time they retire, they have an experience at TransUnion that makes them want to continue to be on this journey that that encourages innovation and, and helps drive it. Next, we have Jack King, CIO at AAOS, who talks about creating an effective innovation culture to foster innovation within the surgical training industry. So let's talk about the challenge. 
obviously right now there's a big disconnect between demand and supply for innovation and innovative thought, right? So we have folks on our teams, some of, the, some of you here deal directly with innovation all day long. How many of you work for an organization that simply drives innovation or it's your primary focus? Okay. All right. And then how many of you work with an organization that's still kind of wrestling with innovation, maybe does some of it both internal or does some of it external? So kind of a split between there. Okay. Um, you know, it's it's always interesting in my mind to take a position as a leader in an organization. I've been here about two and a half years. And when you look at the culture, you tend to find yourself in the middle of the two most dangerous camps in the world, right? Those who want everything to change and those who want nothing to change. And I think those of you who've led other organizations realize that tension creates an interesting opportunity. How you harness it, what you do with it, um, it's challenging. It was challenging to do in person in several of my other roles. I have to tell you, it was most challenging to do this over the last two and a half years in a virtual environment where you hadn't had too much FaceTime face to face with anyone. So to earn that trust and some of the other things we're going to talk about today was certainly a big challenge. So many of you come from established industries. The Academy is very, very well established, been around since 1933. And those who are in fields that are exposed to disruptive technology regularly figure out how to handle that, right? They either adapt or pivot. They rapidly try to develop on their own, or they end up getting usually disrupted from the bottom up, right? People, new entrants come into the market, they do different things. Um, but, you know, when you think about the organizational agility to kind of look out and number one, have that mindset. Number two, understand what does it mean to me? You know, the thought of the tortoise and the hare really came to mind. You have some people that can jump really fast ahead, right? And you have others who they live in their shell of comfort. They don't understand the why, right? And why they're doing it, et cetera. And it's really the, the tough part of leadership is creating that culture so that the folks who are the turtles have that opportunity to move forward and want to go forward with that mindset, right? There's safety there. They, they want to be part of that. So, you know, when I was researching and thinking about ideas of where you see turtles, right? If you ever see a turtle up on a fence post, you know it probably had help getting there, right? Well, a lot of what we're going to talk about today was helping people get up on that fence post and be able to take a look around from a different vantage point. So perhaps you've heard this about questions connecting, right? Extroverts on our teams are the types of people that will ask the questions and our introverts live with them. So one of the first things in getting to create this culture was understanding more about the people that were behind it what their motivations were, what their personalities are, et cetera, right? And creating a safe space to ask these types of questions, to live with these questions about what journey are we on and why are we doing it? How do I or, and other leaders interact with them with a combination of art and science, right? What kind of feedback are they giving me? Uh, you know, quantitative feedback are they giving us in surveys? What are the qualitative things that you see? And again, I would challenge others you know, when you meet people at first on Zoom, it's quite different than reading the body language of someone in a room, right? Because it just isn't as rich. It does take longer to get used to one another, et cetera. I think that was one of the biggest opportunities that we had was how do we rapidly innovate, create those relationships and get them to move forward? Uh, we did do some creative things. Uh, I kind of took literally a Socratic method of this, of talking through and going out and doing walks in the woods, right? So myself, a few others would take the teams out for a walk in the woods where it was a safe space because we socially distanced, right? There was a lot going on with COVID, but it also created an, an opportunity to really connect people with why, give them a chance to talk to us in person, and overall, just make it a safer place, right? And what you find is as you unfold an environment and you look at 
making it safe for them to ask questions, the timing and the framing of those questions come out. The extroverts, those of you who are probably a lot like me in the room, you'll ask the question, you know, almost impulsively, right? You'll lean forward in your chair and do it. You'll have others who are much more thoughtful. And until you connect with their mind and their heart, they're not sure. And especially if you're new and you're, you know, in charge of them and their future, right? And you, you play a big role in shaping where they go in the organization. It takes time to build that. But I will have to say that by creating the environment to ask the right questions, know that you're hitting the right spot because when the people who were quiet started speaking up in the meetings or were the first to speak up, that was a great indicator that we were making progress. And obviously you're inheriting cultures as well, right? And changes in regimes. The academy had gone through a fairly large change a year or two before I came in with new leadership teams. Um, and it was evident that there was change, right? Change in the old guard, change in the new guard. There was trust, there was turnover. There was a lot of different things that were going on at that time. So you had to not only overcome this dynamic here, but the larger uh, cultural dynamic of what you've inherited, right? From that standpoint. So the, the three most important things that I wanted to share about creating a culture where people were comfortable asking questions, right? We're creating a patient environment, which was hard for me. I'm someone who likes to charge hard and get things done and try to get to the results. Th to walk the talk and model that by waiting to ask the question, waiting to see where things were going. And then when we did have people that started to speak up and engage, thanking them for their input, making it safe. And if anybody else, any of the other extroverts started to challenge their thinking or out loud or did things to make it safe for them to say, you know what, that's an interesting point, but we'll come back to that later. So what I had found is that you had two different schools, right? You have people that don't want anything to change. You've got people that want to change things, right? And personalities play a big role in how those things come out. Uh, the, the key question is, am I creating an environment where I'm, as a leader, providing too many answers and not asking enough of the right questions? That was really difficult and challenging for me, but it, it did pay off in the end here. Then, Kuldeep Mahanti, CIO at Hub International, discusses bridging the employee experience gap in a digital world. What I wanted to kick off first is setting the context of why employee experience in a world when everyone's talking about innovation, digital, and getting the customer experience everywhere. Why employee experience matters. To me, it's the biggest issue that if we do not have happy employees inside the organization, how do you really provide a service and a customer experience to the end users? And when they come from that customer experience world, come into corporate IT, the experience sucks. It's a fact of life. We all have gotten used to having onboarding issues, access issues, how does problems. Well, it's corporate IT, it's going to be like that, just suck it up, buttercup, move on. Do we really have to do that? Answer is no. Why no? Because there are forces around us that are forcing us to change our behavior. And how do we really position ourselves to move our experience expectations from today to future? So think of this as, today if you think about customer engagement, you all have Netflix app on your phone. And Netflix has a new feature called, you might like something like this or Amazon has a shopping experience list on your profile today. Why can't we provide that sort of experience to our employees? What's preventing us from getting there? And what needs to change from that perspective? Then how we used to consume assets and services in the past to everything is becoming as an asset or a service. Innovation will end up becoming as a service at some point in future. I'm not saying it's gonna to happen tomorrow, but it will happen as a service. Because companies that are not open and willing to disrupt from within, 
will seek out external help. That's why Deloitte does a greenhouse. KPMG has an incubation lab, right? These are all services available around us to propel that innovative thinking. How do we really start that grassroots model of breaking that disruption from within? And that's moving towards everything as a service. Think about 5G, where edge computing is going. Your cell phone has become a device which NFL uses when the halftime show happens, if you ever happen to be in an NFL stadium. That's what Verizon is doing today by disrupting that everything as a service, your edge computing layer. Why can't that happen in our IT devices that we deploy from corporate? And then truly, the next generation of workforce, their expectation is different. Believe it or not, they don't like to operate on laptops. They like to operate on mobile phones and iPads. Their behavior and expectation from what technology should and could deliver is very different from what they get today. So how do we really prepare ourselves to get to a point where your business models will fundamentally get changed or disrupted based on things that are happening around us, which is beyond us at the moment? And if you take that forward, what are the trends that are driving the connected workplace? Everything is automation. We heard about RPA, we heard about product positioning today in the keynote speech, and it was fantastically put by Brad, that everything you start looking as a product. And the product itself is not something that IT creates. Product is something that IT is delivering, but the consumer of that product is somebody else. And we are telling our users what they should be consuming based on what we feel is right for them without them having a vote in the process. Is that who you want to be? In my opinion, that's not where we want to be. We've got to change that. That's where a lot of the agile product management capabilities infusing the fusion teams of who owns the product category in the first place. Who drives the product backlog? Is it IT or is it truly the business user? How do you change that mindset? And then once you do that, then the workforce preferences will automatically come into the process to create that behavior shift whereby you can start to look at where and how I can bring workplace technology together to provide that automated view, to provide that proactive advice, proactive solution to make your life better. That's where we're heading to. With that being said, think about personal life. I'm okay to live with corporate IT nuances as long as I get the experience of control for automation in my home. Everything is Wi-Fi enabled. I come into the garage, the garage door opens, all lights switch on, my heater goes up, you know, Nest thermostats are up and running. Can I expect that in corporate IT? All of us give up that today. None of us expect that level of expectation or that level of service. Why not? Why should our employees not expect that from us in the first place? And all these different behaviors are all about the movements or the experiences in that moment itself. Is the everyday simplicity. It's the end-to-end experience. It's about that everyday magic. And everything is instant. This generation is okay, but our kids, our next generation, everything is instant gratification. In that moment, I got to get the experience, right? In that social connected world, I got to get that experience, that moment. And how do we drive the customization to that experience of that population? Because our challenge is not today, the generation that's coming with all the science graduates is a population and a generation that is way ahead of us today. And when are designing experiences, keeping them in mind. Next up is Maya Mikhailov, 
founder of Savvy AI, who shares her simple five-step framework of finding value in machine learning, moving past the hype and to practical solutions. Machine learning, for those of you who haven't done it or for those of you who haven't read about it, is incredibly cool. It's so cool that it can drive cars. And it's so cool that it can fold proteins. It's done in minutes what it took scientists years to do. It's so cool that it can even make art now. This is one of my favorite pieces. It's called Dolly Meets Wally. <laughs> but there's a problem. For many of us in our companies, we do not necessarily monetize cool, but what we do monetize is business value. So when we think about machine learning, we can't just think about all the hype and all the cool things that we read about. We have to think to ourselves practically, how is this affecting me and how can I do my job better? Or how can I help my organization succeed with machine learning? And that's where we come to a five-step framework on machine learning, but not just any machine learning, value-driven machine learning. Okay, step one is very simple. It's target the right type of project. Well, what does that mean? I like to say that first of all, if you're thinking about use cases where machine learning can help your organization, I like to apply a three-prong test. The first step is, is this a data-rich environment or a data-rich problem set? Meaning, you don't have to have a ton of data about it right now, but could you collect data about this problem or this um, problem set or this workflow? Can you gather some data about it? Step two is, is the problem you're looking at relevant? If it's an insignificant problem, then it's probably not relevant. You can kind of move on to bigger problems. And is it recurring? Now, this part's really important. If you encounter a workflow or if you encounter a situation at work that only occurs once a year and has very little data that it both generates or that you can extract from it, this is probably not a good case for machine learning. Why? Because machine learning is ultimately pattern recognition on steroids. It's not magic, it's math. It's really, really sophisticated math, but I'll give you a hint. Some of these math equations that we've used for machine learning have been around for decades. It's math that now we're attaching a lot of processing power to so that we can find these patterns in data and then say, if we found this pattern in data, where else can I find it to achieve the result that I'm looking for? That's ultimately the purpose of machine learning. But if you're starting out in machine learning, when you think about your organization, don't pick problems that are too big. I see this happen all the time. Organizational leadership says, we need an AI strategy. And then the first thing they say is, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna build an AI center of excellence. The board loves it. And then they hire data scientists and then they grab expensive software and then they build this AI center of excellence and the first thing they have to do is swing for the fences. Why? Because they've allocated tens of millions of dollars of budget to this problem. So they have to show their executives that they're only solving the biggest, chunkiest problems at their organization. Like for example, in banking, this could be anti-money laundering or fraud detection. Unfortunately, if you choose a problem and you're just starting out in machine learning that's too big, what happens is the timeline of that problem is now 24 months, 36 months. You need more buy-in. You need more organizational support to get this done. And oftentimes, projects that are too big, especially if their first project fails. And then all of a sudden, your, your organization says, wow, we tried machine learning and it, it just failed. We spent 36 
you know, months doing nothing and it failed. We never got any models into production. So choose a problem that's not too big. Also where ROI can be proven. Look, at the end of the day, math is really fun. Trust me, I love math. But no one's here to say, okay, let's do linear algebra and I'll pay you for it. Unless you're maybe you teach math, you have to prove value to the organization and you have to be able to measure the value that the machine learning is bringing to your organization. Whether that's efficiency, saving people time, whether that's profitability, finding patterns that can generate results faster. Whatever it is, it has to bring value to the organization because ultimately this is just a tool. Like a computer on your desk is a tool, this is also a tool. Step two, get stakeholder buy-in. Now, here's what's really interesting. Stakeholders are not just people that you're asking to execute the machine learning. They're not just the IT department. They're not just the data department. Stakeholders are also folks that are being affected by the machine learning. If you are going to, let's say, attach machine learning to help call center operations be more efficient, you know who you should also bring into the loop? The people who lead the call center. Because what's going to happen if you suddenly start telling them how to do their job without any buy-in, without any knowledge? You need stakeholder buy-in, including for the people on the other side of the machine learning. That's how they're going to adopt it. That's how they're going to realize that it elevates their job and doesn't take it away. Okay, step three. Don't fall into the prerequisite trap. There are two huge prerequisite traps that I see companies falling into time and time again. Here's the first one. I promise you somebody said this to me in all seriousness. They said that their board told them we should just hire five data scientists, lock them in a room, and they will figure this out. Now, first of all, I believe there's some like OSHA and HR violations at place if you lock people into a room. But second of all, data scientists are awesome at math. They don't necessarily know the intricacies of your business. This is a tool. Remember, you're the business experts. Locking people in a room and thinking if you just hire this magic unicorn called a data scientist that you managed to wrangle away from one of the big tech companies out west is going to solve all your problems for you is simply farcical. It doesn't work. It's not a magic bullet. This is a trap. Here's another thing I've heard. Our data is, and I'll say it, it's shit. You've heard this before. Our data is shit. It's absolutely horrible. Before we do anything, we need to rebuild our entire data architecture. I've heard this more often than not. We can't do anything until we rebuild everything to begin with. This is a trap. Thinking that you need to rebuild an entire architecture in order to use a tool is thinking that you need to rewire your entire building just to use a computer. It doesn't work that way. You can use smaller data sets. You can start with less, build insights and wins, and then refine from there. And step four, get alignment on KPIs. Make outcomes that are measurable. And when you make outcomes that are measurable, the first thing you have to ask is, do they matter to the business? I've been to a lot of data science conferences, and I've heard data scientists proudly proclaim on stage that they've lowered the root mean square error of their models and their equations by 0.02%. And you know, part of me wants to clap, and then part of me is like, 
Does the business care? So make sure that when you are measuring your machine learning progress, it matters to the business. Which brings me to my last point, which is that you have to tell a story around your data and the results. And some people think storytelling doesn't really apply to machine learning, doesn't apply to data scenarios. I'll just impress them with the data. That's just not how things work. Fire hosing data on a bunch of slides to your teams to try to wow them with statistics will simply overwhelm them. You have to tell a story. Increasingly, part of your job is narrative building. Part of your job is telling a story so that the organization can get behind results, so they can understand the results. So make sure that when you're using machine learning, you're also telling a story with this data. Then Adam Hechtman, most recently the director at Microsoft Philanthropies, shares his knowledge about the innovation and social corporate impact. He shares how Microsoft views and executes social impact initiatives in a digital world. So why are we doing this? Well, the reality is we're living in a changed world, confronted with uh, historic health and economic crises, persistent issues of uh, systemic racial injustice and inequity, the devastating effects of climate change, the lack of trust in governments and other institutional structures. So they've all left corporates operating in a, a, a very different environment than just a few years ago. And this is not just in the U.S. These are this corporates uh, globally. And further, the rapid advances in technology are drastically changing how people live, how people work, how people learn. And while there's great potential for technology to help address society's biggest issues, um, the pace that technology change is happening is having this effect where it's actually um, exacerbating historical inequities. It's like it's, it, it's solving some problems, but it's taking other problems and making them uh, magnified. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, that, that, the, that we should stop the tech industry. Rather, what it's saying here is that it's critical that we apply technology and corporate innovation to address these challenges without sacrificing some of our um, historic values, some of the core values, things like trust privacy, security, human rights, transparency, things like that. So we used to say that a corporation's sole purpose was to provide return to shareholders. And while you, you can debate whether or not that whole, you know, Friedman y kind of thing is 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 still true, there's important reasons why a company should want to innovate on social impact and make society's challenges part of their own. Um, and I broke it into internal and external factors. Internally, shareholders, and indeed many stakeholders, have just these expectations that corporations will, at a minimum, operate at, and conduct themselves with ethical business practices that don't harm society or that don't harm the world. But beyond that, innovating for positive social impact also does some of the things that you would normally come to mind right away, like helping with brand affinity, providing stronger loyalty, improving uh, a brand's reputation. The other piece is that there's some tough competition out there for talent, 
I don't know if you've noticed, it's really hard to hire people that are really, really good. And today's workforce is looking for workplaces that value purpose along with profit. And they're looking for employers that can not only articulate their values, anybody could rattle off a set of values, but those that can actually point to something that says, uh, this is tangible proof that we are living those values. Externally, uh, society now expects businesses to uh, account for their impact on the planet, their impact on the community, their impact on the workforce. Customers, uh, consumers, business customers, they've changed to be more impact-driven. They're looking for companies who are vendors or suppliers that can innovate around social impact. And then there's investment opportunities for uh, businesses that focus their innovations on social impact. And if you do it right, you can build competitive advantage. Um, I, that's where I think Microsoft did a really good job. Uh, for one thing, they brought social impact innovation deep into the corporate culture, and um, as well as the mission. The mission of Microsoft was to enable every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. But as our CEO, Satya, said at one of our company town halls, I don't want to botch this, he said, there's no point in having a core mission that breaks the world and then go back and say, well, we'll talk about a lots of philanthropy and lots of ESG and lots of money. It doesn't make sense. And then he went on to say that he believes that social impact organizations like ours are going to be litigated in society, right? And he says he wants to make sure that Microsoft's on the right side of history. And, and what CEO wouldn't want that? What CEO wouldn't want to say that we're going to be on the right side of things. Because in the face of all of these challenges, we believe, again, the same thing I said at the beginning, companies that can do more should do more. And we are, because it's not only the right thing to do, but it's also because it's core to our mission. And I think if you look at your company's mission or your organization's mission through the lens of social impact, you know, you'll see sir, there's some long-term linkages and strategic benefits to innovating around that impact. And finally is Mike Kennedy, VP of Technology Enablement and Strategy at CDW, who shares his view on the ambidextrous organization. This is a hard problem that I know many of my colleagues are working with, my company's working with, and as I talk to people in the Chicago area and throughout the country, they're struggling with as well. And what it comes down to is, what is innovation? How do I apply it to my company? And how do I do it without wrecking what made me successful? So what is it that makes innovation so attractive that we keep talking about it? How does innovation show up in our business, both in terms of what I like to call little I innovation and big I innovation? And then for those who maybe want to do more of innovation, where do we start? So let's start on the, uh, the analytical side. Let's start, look at some data. This one came from O.C. Tanner. He wrote an article on HBR talking about, okay, when I look at the people who work in these companies, why aren't they innovating them? Why is it still a struggle? And what they found was there were basically three dimensions that each of the people had to look at. Were you encouraged to think about innovation? Did you have the time? And then did you have access to the materials to make it happen? And what you see here is all the leaders had all three. The problem is the individual contributors don't. They have about half as much of those three dimensions. 
So if we think about the distribution of leadership versus individual contributors, close to 80% of the people who could be innovating don't have the right access, they don't have the time, and they don't have the encouragement to make it happen. That's a problem. So let's look at how do we go about actually helping this problem? So there's four things we're gonna look at. The people, the permission, the time, and then the resources. All right, so people, you know, what are the predominant skills? What are the predominant demographics of your teams? I can speak from experience that we're looking very heavily at this because what we found is, much like the studies will tell you, diversity breeds innovation. Different schools of thought, different experiences, different ways of thinking only help the team effort. But you have to figure out where do you need it most? And this is where I think we maybe slip up. If you're running a warehouse, is the warehouse and how you do your picking where you need the innovation? Or is it in your product offering? Is it in your go-to-market strategy? Is it in your strategic thinking? It could be all of the above. But you have to be critical and you have to look internal and think, where should I need, where do I need to apply this? Because then you can make sure you're matching the skills. You can make sure you're matching the effort to go out and make the diverse workforce worthwhile. And then a new dimension that we've been talking about a lot at CDW is about mindset. And mindset comes in many forms. But what I would say is there's a spectrum of ways people think about problems. And you may see this in your day-to-day -day lives. There are those who are very good at being the disciplined executors. I know the rules. I know the game. Follow the rules. There are those who love to think outside the box. Don't talk to me about rules. Talk to me about opportunities. Let me you know, chart the path. Let me put the pieces together. You need all of those kinds of thinkings at different phases of your company and in different places within your organization based on your strategy for innovation. There's a time and place for following rules that's very important if you're in finance. There's a place for thinking critically and thinking creatively if you're in other areas. Do you have the right skills and the right mindsets in the right places? And what I would say is something small that we can do that would start to build this critical thinking and this way of working is in your hiring. Do you have a question about how people think or what makes them innovative? If not, is it worth adding? It's a small thing, but it could pay off big dividends. Let's talk permission and encouragement. So this one's the one that surprised me on that chart because permission and encouragement, I believe, comes from the leadership. Leaders are the ones from which permission and encouragement stem. And we've probably all seen the golden circle uh, from uh, Simon Sinek before. But this circle really gets to the core of, does your team understand why, how, and what? And I'll give you an example. I was in a discussion with a leader. We were talking about innovation. And they said, well, I don't want to give them a bunch of time every quarter to go do innovation because they're going to innovate on the wrong things. Well, is that true if they understand what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it? Because I don't believe they would naturally want to deviate from that. Everybody wants to be part of the team. They all want to contribute. But I wonder if they don't understand why you're here or what you're trying to do. Have we done enough to give people this information? And so, you know, one of the things that we've started doing, especially with a virtual workforce that we've started to build, is take a lot of time building out the strategy and simplifying it to the how, the what, and the why. 
everyone in the organization from the entry developer all the way up to the CTO need to have the same understanding of the what, the how, and the why. With that, you can set them free. They understand what they're trying to do and why they're doing it. They're going to want to help. But without this guidance, it's hard for them to innovate because they don't actually know what you're trying to achieve. So permission and encouragement is one of the big ones that I believe leaders own. And if people in the organization don't feel you have it, or they don't believe that they personally have been endowed with these, it's our job to make sure they get it. And I would argue the small thing we can do is making sure we're reiterating this. Make sure we're going into meetings and going into one-on-ones and asking the questions of, you know, do you understand why we're doing this? Do you understand kind of why the company wants this? Let them tell you and make sure it's flowing all the way down. Time. And I purposely uh, left off number two here to remind myself that there's two on the expectations one. In terms of expectations of time, what is the work expectation of the team? I actually think it's what is it that management has of the team and what is it the team has of themselves? So it's two sets of expectations. Second is how can we make space and then how do we prioritize? Since the pandemic, we found that people are much more flexible in the workforce with how they manage their time. They're able to take more time to spend with family. They're able to go to the recitals and the baseball games and the events that maybe they skipped out on before because a train schedule held them back. Now they're blending their free time and their work time together over the 20 hour, 24 hour clock. If we go back to that research study that said they don't innovate in the office anyway, it's even more important that they're endowed with the authority to innovate in their minds because most of their time isn't spent with you. Most of the time our coworkers is actually now spent thinking about other things, which can help innovation, both small I and big I. But they have to believe that what they're thinking and what they come to you with is important and you want to hear it. Um, one thing I would say about the time that we can do, and this is something that we've started as well, is we've added um, in our QBRs, our quarterly business reviews, and in our financial reviews, does anyone have anything that could help? Just a simple question. But it's meant to lead into some of these innovative ways of thinking. And it can come from anyone. It's not solely from managers, not solely from leaders. It can be anyone in the organization. But the idea is to start to instill this way of thinking that anyone can and should be thinking this way because that's how we're all gonna get better. And then the last one here, the access to resources. So I will say, this is the one that probably trips most organizations up. And there's two ways I would look at the resources. Um, one, the physical resources in terms of people's time, and then the mental resources of how much effort can we actually spend thinking and trying to solve this. When we talk about the access to resources, there's two principles I'd like to talk about. One is, does authority rest with management or does it rest lower in the organization? I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but I've been in companies where they've said, you know, we need a, we need a board. We're going to put together a committee to review innovation ideas and decide what's worthwhile or not based on a business case and blah, 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 blah. That is a, I would argue, a very programmatic way of thinking about innovation, which is not programmatic right? That's very little I. It's not going to help you with the big I concepts, and it's not going to open up the organization to bringing new ideas to you 
because there's a threshold they're going to believe they have to reach or they have to overcome. Pushing it deeper into the organization and giving people that space and time and permission to innovate is a way in which they can start to come to you with outcomes, which I think is a better way of thinking about the innovation. It's not the what and the how, it's the why. Why are we doing this and what can we achieve through it? Then let them run. But at the end of the day, this is what I want to leave you with. It's not the big things. It's not some huge revolution that we have to do inside our companies. It's really just doing the small things consistently. We hope you enjoyed these highlights and learned something new today. As a reminder, the League is a community of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and innovators with a passion for innovation and a growth mindset. We're dedicated to increasing the network of innovation in Chicagoland area and nationally. If you're interested in becoming a member, send us a message at LinkedIn or visit our website at www.dragonspears.com slash innovative-executives-league. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragonspears and produced by Dante32.